Hello and welcome to another episode of Storytime with Dave. I'm your host, Dave. Thanks for joining me today. We're going to get into the CFR. We're going to get into the Council on Foreign Relations. I have three articles in front of me that focus on different aspects of global politics, one of which is related to health, of course. And we'll get into it in a moment. I want to just start by saying that It's like we can have a white pill moment here. And it's been a white pill couple weeks, really. 2022 is shaping up to be a relatively good year, I think, compared to the last two. And it seems like what we've been saying for a long time, which is the idea that the narrative is crumbling and there's just too much pressure on these authoritarian elites that they have to relieve some of the pressure or they're going to be dealing with repercussions that they don't want. When they have all these plans, I think, you know, it seems, let's take this for example. So it seems that they do not want massive, because what is the one, it's a small group of people. So what would be the antidote to that would be large groups of people not complying or peacefully assembling. Obviously, if it was violent, they would prefer that, but I don't even think they really want that right now. I think that they're at a point where that's not in the, in the cards for what they have planned. So I think they have no choice but to relieve some of the societal pressure, which is coming from all these mandates and all this COVID-related nonsense. So I think we're seeing them pedal back, but it's like James Corbett always says, we still have to be vigilant and cognizant of what's going on because now it'll go back to, well, if things truly, if they truly dial it back significantly, which I think they're preparing to do, if you look at like the United Kingdom, for example, and Boris is just like, we're not doing it anymore. We're not doing uh, the mask mandates anymore. And I think they're rethinking all of the vaccine mandates as well. If you look at the guy, the Saskatchewan, I, I don't know what they call it in Canada. Is it like a premier? I don't know if they do it like Australia. You look at the Saskatchewan fella. He's like, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to do the, uh, they had a whole plan. I don't know if this was Saskatchewan. Some Canadian province was saying we're going to tax the unvaccinated because they are taxing the health system. And so they're going to have to pay money, additional tax money, in order to cover the costs because they're burdening the health system. Well, he already said, no, we're not doing that because people were really angry. And obviously they're dealing with the trucker convoy right now. And um, the Saskatchewan guy I don't know if this is the same story or this is a different province that's saying we're going to rethink all of the COVID vaccine mandates. I think they're going to get rid of them. You see this happening a lot. You see Lena Wen, who's like one of the CFR, but we'll say World Economic Forum. I, I believe she's World Economic Forum, one of the young leaders, one of the young global leaders of the World Economic Forum, Lena Wen. And she's got an interesting history with regards to the 
Boston bombing. You can look into that. She is now coming out, and it started with her about a month ago. If you remember, I commented on it. She went on CNN and talked about how the face masks, the cloth face masks are essentially face decorations. They don't actually do anything. And it's lost on, it's certainly not lost on us that this could have been said a year and a half ago, and it was initially. But now all of a sudden they're admitting to these things. And I saw, you know, you see clips of Lena, and she's, she appears to be the point man in terms of dismantling the narrative that they've built up. And they're doing this by design. It's like a controlled demolition of the narrative that they've created where they are willing to concede certain things. This is an idea of a limited hangout, which I didn't know what it was. Lauren and I discovered what it was. I forget what we were listening to. I thought a limited hangout was something entirely different. It's basically like when the, maybe I've explained it before, when like the CIA acknowledges and declassifies certain documents, for example, related to MKUltra and their mind control experiments. Do you think they released all of the documents? Do they think they declassified all of the documents and redacted everything? No. But they were willing to say, you know what, there's a lot of public pressure. I'm not sure what the thought process was. I can't get that deep into their minds. But for whatever reason, they said, we're going to release some of this information. We're going to release some documents. We're going to declassify some stuff. Enough that people will be like, what the heck is going on? But not that they'll know the full scope of what, what's truly happening. And there's limited hangouts in all sorts of situations. It's not limited to the CIA and and their covert operations. It's it's all if the United States admits to accidentally killing a few civilians. You know, I've been reading a David Icke book about 9/11 and we have no idea if you remember um Operation uh Black Desert Storm which was in under Poppy Bush, George H.W. Bush. It might have been in 1991. I forget. It was around 1991. And we had this operation that was largely viewed as successful, where we did probably the thing that we should have done with Iraq. I mean, we should have done nothing with Iraq. That much is acknowledged. There was no reason to do it. I mean, there were plenty of reasons to do it, but not why they said. It had nothing, nothing to do with uh, justice for what happened on 9-11. But we went in and it was kind of just like a surgical strike. And we weren't there for long and then we left. And really we have no idea how many civilians were killed. The United States has never been willing to admit to that. Or what they do admit to is obviously way lower. That's what we always do. We'll never fully acknowledge how much death we caused in that initial um, excursion into or I should say invasion and that was Afghanistan right I'm sorry I should probably know more before but I'm just kind of going extemporaneous right now so in David Icke's book the the amount of civilians killed could be as many as a few hundred thousand because we were doing vicious bombing even though we didn't send that many boots on the ground we were doing vicious bombing with all types of 
really wild weapons that that cause like we there's this one it was basically like a boosted up version of napalm and if you're familiar at all with napalm and we used it in the uh in the vietnam war it caused a lot of health issues for our own soldiers and then if you were directly within a certain radius of the napalm strike it created like a pressurized I'm not going to be good at explaining it, but the way it killed a lot of people is not even necessarily by like incinerating them with the heat of the bomb, but also because it like depressurized or something, it sucks the air out of your lungs. And so people would die from that. We had these boosted up versions for, for, and I'm sure we have something far more sinister now, but at least in the early nineties, we had this boosted up version of that where it was so powerful. The, pressure was so powerful that they were finding bodies of people where their lungs were on the outside of their bodies. You understand? It's disgusting. I'm sorry for being so, uh, it's a really disgusting thing to think about, but this is something that happened because of our weapons. And that's just one example. We had all of these really, um, that caused a lot of injury, catastrophic injury and death. So when the United States says, well, they would never acknowledge the degree, like the amount of people that we killed in that initial strike, they'll never acknowledge it. But they will say, oh, we, we killed, we did a strike on a um, suspected ISIS leader and we did unfortunately kill four civilians in the strike. That would be like a limited hangout to bring it back to the whole reason I brought that up. That would be the idea of a limited hangout for them to say, okay, yeah, we did this, it was bad, we're sorry, and then to not acknowledge the far broader scope of destruction and wrongdoing. And this way, it seemingly gives them more credibility with the blue-pilled public, the people who are willing to believe what the government says or what the military says, where they say, well, why would they admit that? Of course they're being honest, why else would they admit that? It's like, well, that's why, because of what you just said. That's why they would admit to certain things and then keep certain th other things uh, confidential forever. It's, it's like the death toll for, for, we have no idea what the death toll for Iraq. We, we have a degree of an idea and um, it's obviously deep into the hundreds of thousands, but perhaps even millions of people that, that died as a result of um, our flawed invasion of uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then everything else we do in the Middle East, like Syria and Yemen and all of that. So the number is probably in the millions. We just don't know, and they're not going to say, because why would they? Sip of water. So that's what I think is going on with the whole, they go, we've accomplished what we need to accomplish. And what is that? Well, They've normalized the idea of the lockdown by doing the lockdowns. And obviously they get the most pushback for that because obviously you could argue that the vaccine is causing more death, but they're going to obfuscate that as much as possible. And they're going to say the opposite of what they said with COVID-19, where any death that was even slightly linked to COVID-19, even if that was a false positive tests. There are no false positive tests. They're all true positive. There's only false negative tests. And anyone who died with any, any um, slight connection 
to COVID is a COVID death. And now they're doing the opposite with vaccines where someone gets a vaccine, they die 48 hours later. How could you possibly know? How could you possibly know? You know, like a 42 year old gets a jab, has a heart attack the same day. Well, we just don't know if that was the vaccine. I mean, certainly it's suspicious, but we, there's no way of possibly telling. The lockdowns, even um, with that recent Johns Hopkins study saying that they did virtually nothing, I think they, they said that it mitigated deaths by like 0.2% or something. I don't even know how they get these numbers. I didn't look into the study at all, and um, by virtue of it coming from Johns Hopkins, that makes me skeptical of it, because again, that's who hosted Event 201, for example, and uh, that is the birthplace of modern pharmaceutical drugging everyone. The only cure is drugs. Medicine, the modern medical paradigm that we live in. It started with Johns Hopkins University, the Rockefeller Institute, the Rockefeller family, and um, the Flexner Report. And I really need to do an episode where we just talk about that specifically, because I think I've mentioned it a lot, but I haven't done a specific episode on it. And it's really fascinating. So, They've normalized all these things, the lockdowns. Okay, that's possible now. It wasn't possible. They found a justification for it. And it's like we've speculated, and it's pure speculation, but for example, the idea of climate lockdowns, where they could say, well, it might not have worked for the virus, but if you look at the amount of carbon that was being produced and going into the atmosphere, it was significantly reduced during the lockdowns. So, but obviously they'd need to do more um, assault on the psyche of humankind before they could pull off something like that. At this point, as it stands, I don't think that would fly. I don't think it's a stretch to say that that would not, they wouldn't be able to do that. That's a, that's a, that's a step too far, definitely. But they've, they did it. And you know what? In 2019, if someone had brought up the idea of a global lockdown, it would have been seen as ludicrous, insane, conspiracy theory nonsense. So they've accomplished that. Face masks all over the place. And as I've discussed so many times before, and as Lena Wen, the World Economic Forum young leader, now acknowledges they don't actually work in stopping the spread of viruses. I don't even think that N95 masks work in stopping the spread of viruses. I don't even know if viruses cause disease, but that's a whole different thing but they've normalized the face mask and it's the same thing. And we need to think back. We have to remember what they want us to do is to forget. They want us to forget when they say never forget. It's the opposite. This goes to the whole Luciferian idea of everything being upside down. You don't have to believe in, in the devil or in God or in any of the spiritual elements of it. I'm just using that word as whatever you want to think of it. It would be an evil thing to do and a manipulative thing to do to large swaths of people, to confuse them so much by things, by reality being the opposite of the narrative. So, damn, I just blanked out and I forget what I was gonna say about whatever being the opposite. But anyway, continuing. The masks are normal, 
in oh yeah, yeah okay so so they want you to forget yeah, yeah, yeah this is what i was gonna say they want you to forget so it's like what they say for example let's take a uh, an obvious example is people making comparisons to the holocaust as to all of the the apartheid society and um the the idea of unvaccinated people being um subhuman that's the idea is to make them seem subhuman to justify atrocities against them it would obviously start with the dehumanization process it doesn't just start with concentration camps and anyone who's willing to be honest and act in good faith and have a discussion about it would acknowledge that that no one's saying i mean well you do have the camps in australia and i don't know what the latest on that is but they're there and they were putting people in the camp so i don't see how you could not draw a comparison there but even in other places if it's not just limited to australia you can see the push the way that they are pushing blue-pilled people to believe that unvaccinated are subhuman and they're dangerous and they are vectors for disease. Again, a direct comparison where Hitler would describe Jews as vectors for disease. So when they say something like, never forget when it comes to the Holocaust, never forget. But then you bring up things that should be directly compared in an effort to prevent something like that from ever happening again. They say, don't bring that up. So when they say never forget, what they mean is forget. So don't forget three years ago because they want you to forget that. Don't forget what it was like to see someone wearing a mask in New York City, and I'll never forget this. I was walking, I remember where I was. I was between Park and Lexington on 40th, walking to work. I remember exactly where I was. And it was like February 2020, and it still was as well, we suspected that it was still just contained to China, and that it wasn't a worldwide scam yet. And I remember walking, and I saw a woman wearing a, like, scarlet mask. Isn't that symbolic? Like, it, it was like blood red. It was like the color of blood. And she was the only person I saw. And I remember seeing her wearing that mask and being like, you're a loser. I remember just thinking that and being like, are you serious right now? Because at that time, it was still a weird thing to do to wear a mask. And you would occasionally see, like, maybe you see Asian people, like, from time to time wearing masks. And I, I thought that was weird, too. But that would be the extent of you seeing that. Remember this. Don't forget this. And so what have they done? They've normalized it. And as I've said, like, I, like well, what, what I was getting to was the idea that what they're for is to degrade. It's to hurt children and their development. In this regard, they're very, you know, they're effective. They're not ineffective. They're just ineffective at stopping the spread of viruses. 
but they're very effective for other means. So that's what I mean. They've normalized them. And then the vaccine and changing what a vaccine is, introducing this mRNA technology, they've accomplished a lot where they can now dial things back and give us the false idea that, that, we, that it's over. Because it, it'll never be over. I mean, maybe someday it'll be over, but it's going to take a lot more than this. This is where we finally said, okay, that's enough. We've had enough. And that's the white pill essence of what I'll talk about. But it's still, they, they have this philosophy of two steps forward, one step back. And I'm certain that they, they felt, well, we can instill fear, extreme fear. We can manipulate the numbers as much as we'd like. We'll be able to get away with it. People won't think critically because they'll be completely paralyzed with fear. And so we'll be able to do this, this, and this. Then they probably had a category of things where they said, maybe we'll be able to get to this. I'm just thinking of like, even if it was just, if you're making a plan, you have to make a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, you have to have certain stipulations. Well, if this, then this. And I'm sure this has been very successful from their view. And I don't think they felt that it could last as long as it has, but it has. And for them to be able to normalize things as much as they have, for them to be able to pit people against each other as effectively as they have, you know, pitting family members against each other, turning friends to enemies, things of that nature. I don't know if they knew that it would be as effective as it has been. But I'm sure there was a understanding that at a certain point, they would have to dial it back. They're gonna push and push and push until they get sufficient resistance that it does not any longer make sense to continue pushing. And then they're gonna dial it back and it looks like we are in the process of the dial back, but to our credit and to the, to the great credit of the Canadians, because that appear, appears to really be the crux of all of this. And there are probably other factors involved, but that seems to be a primary factor in terms of their changing course and about facing on not everything, but at least on a lot of important things. And who would have thought and I am sorry, I'm going to publicly apologize to the Canadians. I'm sorry, because what I didn't realize, and I always thought it would be Americans who would be the strongest and who would be the ones to turn this around, but it was actually the Canadians. And I've been thinking about this. <laughs> what makes America unique is the Bill of Rights, the idea of freedom that is within the soul of the American or within the psyche of Americans. But in this case, interestingly, and it's a similar situation with Australia perhaps, but I think it's especially um, appropriate or, or I think it applies especially to America where we have 
this federal system of government where we have states who can make their own decisions. Now, if you look at Texas, for example, or if you look at any of the states that have been doing things in a more soft-handed approach, less authoritarian, doing things not like California and New York. If you think about California and New York, New York, especially New York City, where do the where are there large concentrations of people who are compliant? At least with regards to health. Because you have to understand that it's true, you had lots of violence and uprising and protest with when it came to the Black Lives Matter, um, all of that that was going on in the summer of 2020. So it's not necessarily that they're overall compliant, but they're also politically left-leaning. And they're taking advantage of that, and they've, they've been taking advantage of that by making this an issue of fake morality or perceived morality where you say you people are dying if you don't do this it's because you want people to die so they're preying on the instincts of someone who is easily susceptible to that kind of propaganda so you're way more likely to see a protest in new york city over a police killing an innocent person you're way less likely to see that in Texas or in Florida. But on the other hand, you're way less likely to see people protesting restrictions related to the idea or the lie of keeping people safe and healthy in New York. You're more likely to see that type of protest in Texas. But here's the thing. If Texas doesn't, put those types of mandates in at the state level, then you're not going to see the protests there. And I think that's one of the reasons, and that's one of the things that they've used strategically, sip of water, is the, um, is that they've regionalized the tyranny in the United States. And they've said, well, we'll, where we can get away with things, we, we will put those there. So can we get away with creating an apartheid city in New York? Yes. And can we dehumanize the unvaccinated people in New York? Yes. And will they make a big fuss about it? No. You might have a little fuss about it, but not a big fuss and not enough to worry about. Can we do that in Texas and get away with it? No, we can't. So we won't. It's very simple. In Canada you had more of a heavy-handed approach across the board. And certain provinces like Alberta were a little bit less tyrannical in their approach, but still worse than, say, Texas or Florida. And you have people who, you have plenty of people who are still human beings, they're just Canadians, but they have similar... Um, beliefs and value systems to people in America and people who live in places like Texas, especially people who are truckers. And you think about, that's why it was a good demographic because they do hold a lot of sway when organized because they're so important to supply chains. For all of the people, 
whether they're vaccinated or not, whether they agree with the tyranny or not, it doesn't matter. They have a very important role in society functioning. And they probably tend to be people whose value system is more in line with that of someone in Texas rather than that of someone in New York City. And I'm obviously not talking about Austin, Texas, but I think you know what I'm getting at here. So they didn't have the ability or maybe they didn't play it the same way because they felt that maybe they felt that Canadians overall were more compliant and maybe on average they are, but certainly there's a chunk, a sizable chunk who are just as opposed to this kind of totalitarianism as people in certain areas of the United States. So I think that's why Canada has been unique to being the type of place that would, you know, create a movement like this and become a real problem. So the white pill definitely is coming from the Canadian trucker protests. I also like, I'm going to get to the CFR stuff, I promise. That'll be the second half. And I'm wrapping up what I'm thinking about now, but I did want to talk about this stuff. I've been listening to a lot of David Icke recently, and you need to you need to check out David Icke. If you don't, I mean, you need to just go to davidike.com. I c k e davidike.com. You need to watch some of these videos, read some of these articles. It's fantastic. He's the best. And I tell you what, I was um. It was crazy. It's like there's been so much serendipity over the past two weeks and symbolism, but positive symbolism. Because, again, this isn't something that I get into too much, but I've seen a lot of it on my own and I don't, I haven't done a lot of episodes on it. I should talk about it more, but you talk about like the Satanists or whatever they are, but the evil people. The people who meet at Bohemian Grove, Grove and burn owl effigies. The people who are, you know, conducting all of the human trafficking and things of that nature. The Clintons are a perfect embodiment of this idea. But you look at these evil people in the way that they use symbolism because they understand the impact of symbolism on a subconscious level. But on the other hand, you've got people who are conspiracy researchers who look into this kind of thing, and we also understand it on a subconscious level. Anyone who's looked into Pizzagate and stuff and seen all the, the symbols, like the triangle thing, and that's like little boys, I, I'm not going to, I know that to some of you that might not mean anything, and if you want to go down that rabbit hole, I highly recommend it. But it's creepy, so just be prepared. But the point is the symbols, and we've learned to identify the symbols, but something that David Icke does is he actually uses the symbols in a positive way, because that would be the other, the other side of the coin. It wouldn't just be, and it's important to identify, okay, this is a symbol, this is an evil symbol, it's a red flag, look out for it. It's important to be able to identify that kind of thing but it's equally as important to say, okay, well, what are good symbols that we could utilize? 
and we could utilize sim symbolism and kind of tap into a subconscious of positivity rather than their subconscious, they're tapping into the fear response, the primitive brain, the lizard brain. That's where they're trying to tap into and create a sense of fear and to make it, to give it a physical manifestation. So it's one thing to be afraid, but it's another thing to have like a pit in your stomach because of your fear. And like walking into a store, and this happened to both sides of people. So in the heart of all of this, the scam, you had a lot of people who would walk into a score, score uh, <laughs> who would walk into a store with, you know, two masks on. They just put a bunch of Purella on their hands, but they were still terrified. Anyone could be a carrier of the virus. And so there was a real fear. Like, it's like stage fright when you get stage fright, when you have to speak in front of people. A pit in your stomach. To be able to give people that sensation all the time, it's going to interrupt their mental faculties. They're not going to be able to think critically. They're going to be constantly under siege by their sympathetic nervous system. That's what's activated when you have this fight or flight response. But they get both sides because on the other hand, you had people like me who very early on were going into places without a mask on. But I still had that fear in a, in a different way. I wasn't afraid of getting a virus. I was afraid of getting kicked out, getting yelled at. And even if people were willing to do something violent, which wasn't out of the realm of possibility. And you saw a lot of examples of it where, again, in their irrationality and in their fear, some people resort to acts of violence against people who they feel wrongfully are endangering them by not wearing a mask, for example. A sip of water. So we always get bogged down in the conspiracy world of the negative things that are going on, pointing out what's going on, identifying the true narrative, identifying connections between events that are seemingly not connected. And all of these things are important, but we also need to employ our own types of, you know, tools of symbolism. I'm just going to get another water bottle because I ran out. You know, of just trying to combat it additionally, not just by identifying it, but then by employing the opposite. Things that actually have a reinforcing impact on people's psyches and produce the opposite of fear. So... I wanted to, just out of curiosity, listen back to very early on, even it was just a week in to the lockdowns in America, which started on March 13th, which was of 2020, which was Friday the 13th. Isn't that interesting? I actually want to double check that. I'm going to fact check myself really quick. Let's see. March 13th. Yes, it was Friday the 13th. Coincidence? I don't know. You be the judge of that, but it certainly is interesting.
again, symbolism. It was a week in, and David Icke went on to Brian Rose's podcast and spoke with him for two hours. A sip of water. And it was enlightening. And that was like the, the real, real red pilling where I was also duped at the very beginning. I didn't know what was going on either. And I was turning on CNN to watch Andrew Cuomo, who I actually miss now because Hochul is worse. Imagine that. Bring Cuomo back, dude. Can't believe I would ever say that. Not that it makes much of a difference, but... It was a week in, and then that was the red pill moment for COVID, where I recognized that. So it was really early on when I recognized it was a scam. A lot of us did. But they did dupe me for like a week or two. And then I remember finding this podcast, and it just explained so much in such a clear way that made so much sense, and it was so concise, and it was so well thought out. And this was coming from a guy who had been doing this for 30 years and so was very prepared. And you can see videos, even Alex Jones talking about this stuff in like 2009, James Corbett, who I love, I've been going back and watching some of his podcasts that he made in like 2014, 2013, you know, talking about exactly what would happen and how it would happen. And David Icke just happens to be the one who was the first one that I heard from where I was like, oh my God, no way. And then I remember him making predictions because Brian was like, well, what's going to happen? So I was curious to go back because they did five interviews in total, all of which were between two and three hours. If you want to go listen to them, you need to go to Brian Rose's podcast. It's called London Real, but you, he, he releases so many podcasts. And now all he does is cryptocurrency stuff. And you need to scroll back. The first one was on March 19th. The next few are in subsequent weeks. It's called Dave. It's called Rose slash Ike 1 through 5. So Rose slash Ike 1 is on March 19th. It was published. I wanted to see just how correct David was in hindsight. And it was just amazing. So first of all, like I said, all Brian Rose for the past year pretty much has been releasing is about cryptocurrency. So I don't listen to the podcast anymore, but I'm still subscribed for whatever reason. That was a sip of water. I, when I went back out of the blue like a week ago to go listen back to this David Icke interview, what was the top notification? It was Brian Rose and David Icke. So that was the first serendipity. He had done, after doing all of this crypto stuff, he had David Icke on again. Now he's only been releasing little clips of it and he hasn't released a full episode yet. Maybe it's on his website, I'm not sure, I haven't checked. But it's Rose Icke 6. So imagine that, with no notification, just out of my own curiosity and remembering, because I, I started uh, reading David Icke's book about 9-11, and thinking to myself, I'd love to hear, in hindsight, that first episode again, because I hadn't heard it since early 2020. And then I go back to this podcast, where all he's been releasing is cryptocurrency stuff, 
And there's David Icke, the top episode. I could not believe that. So I go and listen back to it. And it's, it's like remarkable just how correct he was about everything. He basically called everything. Sip of water. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting a little dry. I got to. So that was the first serendipity. And then I was watching a video of his. Um, he does this thing called Dot Connector where he takes stories in the news and then he connects them together so you can get a better idea of how it relates to the broader narrative and agenda. And if you watch those videos, at least that week or for a few weeks, because I watched one of the newer episodes and it wasn't there, but he had this lion. He had this picture of a lion like on the side, like that's the symbol. And I loved it. It made me feel good because it's like the opposite of symbolism that makes you feel weird. Do you remember like... Um, I forget what Olympics it was, but it was the one in London where you had all these. It's the creepiest video if you ever look it up. It's the opening ceremony for the Olympics, and I think it was 2008. But it was in London, and they had all these. Obviously, it had been. It's gone viral on and off over the past two, year, two years. And it's a bunch of like it's like a giant needle and a bunch of hospital beds and stuff. And it's like the strangest, creepiest predictive programming I've seen. I didn't watch the Olympic ceremony. I only saw one picture and there was a bunch of doves, which I thought was weird because doves are generally, aren't they more positive? I'm not sure, but I thought they were. So that would be interesting if the Chinese Olympics of all Olympics would have more positive predictive programming. Anyway, they utilize these ceremonies. If you remember the Super Bowl uh, last year, and the weekend, and all like the mummies, like whatever the fuck, they were all wrapped up. That was the creepiest halftime show I've ever seen. And so that's them using their symbolism because they know at these events they're going to have a wide-ranging audience. They're going to have a huge audience. How many people watch the Super Bowl? Tens of millions of people. Big audience, get the symbolism in there. And get them at that subconscious level. And so this is why I felt like you can just feel it's wrong sometimes when you don't, you can't even necessarily put your finger on it, but it creeps you out. It makes you feel weird. That's the kind of symbolism that they use. But on the other hand, seeing this picture, it's like a picture of a lion's head. It's like colorful. And then it's kind of like has all the countries of the world. If you watch any of the videos, I'm highly recommending, like I said, you should watch some of these videos, but you'll see what I'm talking about. And to me, that's a symbol that represents, obviously, lion is like courage, bravery, dignity, and the countries of the world. So it's like, what does that symbol say to you? And to me, that's a really good symbol. And the lion generally, like in symbology, is a more positive symbol for these reasons, what it represents. So that was the first, so, so now you've got like the serendipity of stumbling upon or going back to look at the David Icke thing and he's just been on it again. 
after starting reading his book on 9-11. And then I see that line and I was like, that makes me feel good. And um, I'm forgetting one part too. Oh yeah, yeah, so then I start, this is just another like interesting parallel that I felt or whatever you would call it. Like I started doing a carnivore diet recently because I still have the psoriasis all over my body. It's really annoying. I'm trying to get rid of it and I feel like doing a really strict elimination diet such as carnivore where all I'm eating is meat might help me get to the bottom of it if it is related to something in my diet. That's the, I'm not gonna do this diet forever, but it does make me feel really good. My mood is improved constantly. I have a lot of energy too. And I was thinking to myself, what does a lion eat? Meat. Huh? Am I right? Right, guys? Lion eats meat? The lion eats meat. I'm being like the lion, dude. We're lions. And then, (laughs) this just happened the other night. Like, Lauren was over and we were just hanging out. And I showed her this tweet from uh, Nicholas Williams, who's an NFL player. And he had the best tweet I felt about the whole Rogan situation. I don't even want to talk about it because it's obviously like, even my cousin could see that it's a distraction. My blue-pilled cousin, even my blue-pilled cousin was like, this just seems like a distraction. So I don't feel the need to even comment on it. It's not, you know how I feel about it. You know, I don't need to tell you. It's retarded. We'll, we'll just leave it there. It's and it's a distraction. It's not about the N-word or whatever. It's about the COVID stuff. It's about the upcoming elections. He's too powerful. It's obvious. But the best tweet that I saw was also the shortest tweet that I saw on the subject, and it was from Nicholas Williams, who's an NFL player. I think he's like a defensive end or something. And he just said, y'all worried about the wrong Joe. Referring to Joe Biden. And I... I didn't see a better tweet than that. That was the best tweet, the simplest. It didn't have a bunch of, and he's a black guy. And, you know, so you see the white people who are like defending and they're like, well, I'm not condoning the use of the word, but blah, blah, blah. This was just, y'all worried about the wrong Joe. And I remember I said to Lauren, because the team that he's on, I said, I guess I'm a Lions fan now. Cause he's on the lions and she was like, Oh my God, lion. And I was like, wow, I didn't like, it didn't even register with me at first. I was like, Holy shit. That's true. Just another situation. I've been seeing it everywhere. This has only gone on for like a week since I saw that David Icke video. And I was like, lion. I love that. What like that to me was such a good example of like turning the symbolism in the other direction. Like, they have their goat and their owl effigies and all this fucking weird shit. And they've got their animals that represent whatever they represent. I haven't done a deep enough dive. And, like, Moloch and all that shit. I said that's so Jewy. But we have the lion, dog. It's the year of the lion. I've been saying this mostly to Lauren and my sister. But it's the year of the lion. I've been saying it on Instagram. It's the year of the lion. By the way, I post Instagram stories 
I'm back to posting them basically every day or every other day. And it's usually like 10 to 12 slides. And they're always interesting or funny. And you should check out the stories because Instagram is so heavily shadow banning me that my stories used to get, I think I discussed this, my stories used to get like between 200, sometimes a little more, 220 views per slide. Now I get like 12 per slide. It's amazing. So, but I have way more listeners. Like there's way more of you listening to this right now than are seeing my story. And it's different stuff. It's not the same stuff I talk about here. So I would say, you know, whatever, if you're interested, just go check it out. I don't really care because I started saving them and it's more like I call them on my main page. I've been saving the stories now and just calling them posterity, posterity one, posterity two, posterity three. Because it's more like at this point, I don't really, what's the difference between reaching 200 people or 12 people? It doesn't make that much of a difference with the story that's just not that important. I think you get a lot more out of my podcast than my Instagram stories. But it's more just so I can go back later. Because I would love to be able, I've been doing this since the beginning. I've been posting these stories with these news articles and making comments and stuff. And just all the, the tweets and the crazy Reddit comments and all that shit and memes. And I would love to be able to go back and see the ones from, I guess I could also just go to my photos and go back. But I like, I like to have them there in that format. So I'm saving them now. So it's more just for me. I'm just saying if you're interested, if you feel like checking them out, they're usually pretty fun. Okay, so, but anyway, that's, that's, uh, there's, this is good, okay? <clears throat> we can still be realistic about what's going on, and then it's a two-step forward, one-step back strategy that they're using, and this doesn't mean we've defeated them, and this doesn't mean that it's over, and this doesn't mean that they're going to stop doing this, or that they're not going to do this again in three years. It doesn't mean that. And we need to be more prepared, and we can't just forget. They want nothing more for us. They want us to forget. They want us to forget what life was like in 2019. They want us to forget that they locked us down. They want us to forget that the vaccine was a horrible failure, that they were telling us it would stop the spread, for example. They want us to forget everything. So we have to be sure to remember these things for when they try it again in a few years, which they will. And we have to make sure they can't get away with it again. But that doesn't mean we can't be white-pilled for the time being. It's okay. We could take a small victory lap. What's happening in Canada right now is fantastic. It's not a psyop because I've seen some stuff going around and I, I was reading a Reddit comment that was like, whatever. They were trying to claim it's a psyop. Even if it was, like this is the point that Matt Belair, who I listened to, and he's got a good podcast he brought up. Even if it started as a PSYOP, whatever the point of it was, and I don't see what the point of it would be other than to maybe be like, this is why we can't have truckers, this is why we have to automate everything, I don't know. Or to make certain things illegal that weren't illegal before, I don't know. Whatever it started as, even if it was a PSYOP, it's good now. Then the PSYOP was a mistake. Because we have to remember the they, as Mo calls them, capital T, the they, capital T, they, they are not that smart. And especially the actors, it's like, do you think, you remember at the beginning when Tony Fauci accidentally said the truth? And one of the few times in the past two years that he's told the truth was when he said that masks don't work at the very beginning. 
do you honestly believe when he changed his mind on that, do you honestly believe his explanation that, oh, well, we just had to make sure it was a noble lie because we had to make sure the right people were getting the mess? Or do you think Tony Fauci is incompetent even to the cult, even to the Event 201 elitist cult, Agenda 21, all of these things? You know, 2030, I forget what that one's called. But the CFR people, the world economic people. Do you think Fauci, with his degree of incompetence when it comes to public health, do you think he's any more competent with these people? I mean, no, he's following orders. But do you think that they were happy with him when he went on TV and said the masks don't do anything when he admitted that? No, he got a phone call and they said, Tony, you fucking retard. We're not telling them to wear the mask for their health. We're telling them to wear the mask to degrade them and control them, you idiot. Go back on TV and tell them it was a noble lie or something. You figure it out. So these people aren't that smart. The they aren't that smart. They've got actors. Even if the people at the very top are very smart, they have to go through all these avenues and it's like compartmentalized. It doesn't come directly from the top. It comes from, there's a breakdown, there's levels. And then you've got the Anthony Fauci's who actually have to go out and go on TV and put this stuff into action. And they make mistakes all the time. GoFundMe might have just ruined their business with what they did with the Canadian truckers. Certainly, their, their stock is going to plummet. I don't know if they're publicly traded. But either way, they, they have really, really, really fucked up. So there was some incompetence going on there because I just think about it from my own perspective. If I was one of these elites, if I was like a Rothschild, like head of the family, and I saw GoFundMe, if I saw all the truckers raising money on GoFundMe, the last thing I would want to do is steal their money. What could antagonize them more and also energize them more and make them know on a deeper level that what they're doing is right than to take away their money? If I was there, I would call up GoFundMe and I would say, do not even think about canceling that fundraiser. Leave it. It's like a no-brainer. Like, you cannot do that. It's such... It's such a horrible mistake, and they did it, and it was a horrible mistake, and they're paying for it, and white pill, dude, year of the lion, we can be happy about that. We can be really happy about that. We don't have to be bummed out about everything. Not everything is controlled by they, and they make mistakes. Sometimes giant gaffes, like what happened with GoFundMe or like what's going on with Spotify, sometimes they make giant gaffes too. Because they have to rely on these actors at lower levels to do the right thing and to behave according to the agenda and the narrative. And this isn't even people going rogue and going against the narrative. It's people who are incompetent because they've been placed there largely because of their incompetence, but because of their compliance and their ability to follow rules and do what they're told. But sometimes that backfires on you. So they're dealing with a lot of subsequent backfires. And we're dealing with a lot of good shit. And also the last thing that I want to say 
too, because I was thinking about this before, and this might not fit in exactly with what I'm going to say. Before I go to um, the CFR thing right now, and I'm still going to do that. Don't worry. I know I've been going an hour, but whatever. I mean, I, you know, it's good. Let's do it. I'm going to have a cigarette before I do that, but you won't even know because I'm just going to pause the recording. In 2019, right before the pandemic, what was going on? Do you remember? There were protests going on everywhere. There were protests going on in South America. There were protests going on in European countries. There were protests going on in Hong Kong. You know, you had the yellow vests in France going out every Saturday and going and protesting. There were protests going on all over the world. And then they roll out COVID-19. I don't know if, they, if, if this was the timing that they wanted. So even just from the beginning, I think they were dealing with circumstances that they didn't want to deal with because of the behavior of the masses of people. So there are, red, red, there are white pills to be gleaned from all of this. It's not all black pill stuff. It's not all bad. And we need to highlight that and point that out and pat ourselves on the back a little bit. Because, um, you know, we're all trying to do something. I mean, people send me, like, we got small roles to play. What do the truckers do? They have their protest that actually does something. It's not just like uh, the pussy hat protest, you know? They have protests that actually do something. And it's not destructive. It's constructive. And we've all got, it doesn't mean, I mean, Corbett was talking about this too, where there was this like, now there's a movement to have a trucker convoy in the United States, but it doesn't have to be like, let's just copy what everyone else does. It doesn't have to be like that. Like, oh, only the truckers can save us. Sip of water. It can be anything. And you just do it your own way. Like I am doing this podcast where I talk about these things and I post my Instagram story. And it's not much, but it's a little bit. More people should do little things that are easy. Like, I like doing the podcast. It's fun for me. And I used to do different stuff with the podcast before COVID and before all of this tyrannical, like, bullshit and before discovering these, all of these, uh, before doing all of this conspiracy research. But I find it really interesting and it's good knowledge to have. And so I like sharing it with other people and I like other people to have it. But even people that I know who have become red-pilled by all of this but are too afraid to even make that public, which I understand. But then they'll send me, like, memes and stuff to share on, the, uh, on my story or they'll send me articles to talk about on the podcast. And that's helpful. And I like that. And maybe they're not the type of person that can have a podcast and that's okay. So they help me out with mine. And they send me, dude, did you see this article? Yo, did you see this white paper? Uh you know, from 1991, talking about, uh, you know, pandemic virus, coronaviruses. I'm like, what? holy shit. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. I'll fucking talk about it on the podcast. It's little things that are helpful. White pill, year of the lion. I'm going to be right back. And you won't even know. Like I said, I'm just going to pause it. But then we'll, we'll do the CFR stuff. And then we'll call it a day. All right. You know, even still to this day, 
just stepping out on my on my stoop to have a cigarette and you still see people it's hard to put a percentage on it but here in Hoboken you still see about 20 to 30 percent of people outdoors with masks on and now they're all N95s they look like ducks they got little beaks it's the do you think that they make them look that dumb on purpose like just to further degrade people I'm not sure I don't see why not. I saw a story that I shared on my on my Instagram story. It was a Vice article talking about how wrapping pantyhose around your face and mask helps your mask fit better. Be safe. To me, that is just someone trolling at Vice, and I love it. It's high-level trolling. It's like, do you think we can get people to put pantyhose on their face and they're not robbing a bank? It's crazy, dude. <laughs> And again, it goes back to the idea of symbolism. Like, what is the mask a symbol of? It's a muzzle. Shut up, slave. As they would say on No Agenda. Shut up, slave. Put the mask on, pussy. You take off the mask when I tell you you take off the mask. And then you won't. You won't even want to. When I say it's okay, when Lena Wen goes on TV and says the mask is useless, you won't even listen. Sip. Of water. <coughs> <clears throat> but it's fine we're we're done with the masks we take the masks off because you know what at this point the pandemic is psychological some people are still living in a pandemic <clears throat> some people stopped some people stopped a week in Some people like like myself and some of you. We haven't been living in a pandemic since the end of March 2020. So it's a choice at this point. It's like when Kanye said slavery is a choice. It's the same thing. You're deciding to live in a pandemic at this point. You're making that conscious decision or perhaps subconscious. And it's then being reflected in your conscious actions but you're deciding to live in a pandemic you don't have to if you don't want to you can be done with it so let's talk about the CFR and let's read some of these articles and I think this will be a recurring thing where we check in with the CFR and see what they're talking about because it's the Council on Foreign Relations and foreign relations is a wide scope it's a broad scope because it's talking about you know, I mean, their agenda is globalism, creating a one world government. That's the larger, broader agenda. It's doing things like the European Union, but on a grand scale, the United Nations, but with more authority or perhaps being the sole sovereign body of legislators, you know. And... Um, you know, international relations, global relations, it's, it's a broad scope because it, in, it encompasses all of these other aspects of society, such as health, economics, global conflict, whether those be legitimate or manufactured. And that's why it's important. And it also happens to be home of, you know, or contain members 
of all of these suspicious actors. Um, and they have a lot of sway, the same way that the World Economic Forum does. And realistically, it's just probably a think tank where they come up with a lot of these ideas and talking points and narratives about how we're going to shape things in, in their vision. So I'll just read the about really quick. I'll read the about. Um, the Council on Foreign Relations is an independent, nonpartisan, imagine that, it's nonpartisan, membership organization, think tank, and publisher dedicated to being a resource for its members, government officials, business executives, journalists, educators, and students, civic and religious leaders, we've got red flags right out the gate, and other interested citizens in order to help them better understand the world and the foreign policy choices facing the United States and other countries. Founded in 1921, CFR takes no institutional positions. What does that mean? On matters of policy? We're going to see very quickly that that is not the case. Our goal is to start a conversation in this country about the need for Americans to better understand the world. Through our lens, I added that last part. I'll read their history really quick. It's just a paragraph. Since the establishment of the Council on Foreign Relations in 1921, the organization remains true to its founding principles to afford a continuous conference on international questions affecting the United States by bringing together experts on statecraft, finance, industry, education, and science. They have a lowercase s. I think they should put an uppercase s for science because we know what science they're talking about. Explore CFR history growth and okay. Um, let's see what the funding is. Maybe I can see the funding here. I wonder who funds this. Annual and other unrestricted gifts is where they get 17%. That's an endowment draw. Uh, funding sources for the David Rockefeller Studies Program. I mean, right there you see Rockefeller. That's a, that's a red flag. We could maybe... Um, I'll, I'll kind of look into that on my own and get you a better idea of who's funding this. But we know who's funding it. Do we really need to look into it? I mean, it's they, capital T. So I saw this like a week ago. I saw, I just went to check out what they're talking about on the Council on Foreign Relations because I realized, why not just go to the source with a lot of this stuff? Let's just go to the source. What did we do with um, Operation Lockstep? We just went right to the white paper. What did we do with... Uh, you know, that's what we could do with a lot of this stuff. I forget the other episode I did recently on something else that was a white paper, but we could just go right to the source to see what they're talking about. We don't need to, we don't need to go through other means. We could just see it for ourselves. So um, this is in regards to all of the stuff that's going on with Russia, which is, it's, it's duping the people who you wouldn't necessarily expect to get duped currently. Because as we saw, the, the shift in the anti-Russia rhetoric since 2015 has been coming from Democrats. 
and their sensationalism about Russia interfering in elections when it's really negligible. It's barely anything. Who manipulates elections more than, say, Google or Facebook? These aren't Russian actors. And right now we see with Ukraine, they're warmongering and they're starting to, they're trying to start a hot conflict or at least justify further, um, what do they call them? You know, when you like punish the country, you can, sanctions, sanctions. They're trying to justify further sanctions on Russia. And David Icke's take on it, and I tend to agree with this, is that they're trying to push Russia further toward China. And I kind of was thinking about it like this. If you've read 1984, and I forget what they're called, there's like three regions. It's like Oceania, and it's like three big countries. Like they they want to remove nation states because there's too many variables. If you can keep it all to one global nation, that would be the easiest to control. It's about centralizing control. Because then there, you know, there's less you have to worry about. You don't have to worry about a United States going against the narrative, although we usually are the ones at the forefront of the narrative. But you wouldn't have to worry about a Canadian trucker envoy kind of undermining the whole COVID scam. Um, you wouldn't have to worry about all these things. You could have a more centralized system of control. But at the very least, if you can regionalize and create fewer nation states and kind of push them into one, that's a little easier. Or at least get them to behave in accordance with one another, such as the case with the European Union. Sip of water. So let's talk about this. I have three articles. We don't have to read the whole things, although they're pretty short. And um, there's a lot to talk about within each of them. So this one's called Russia's energy role in Europe. What's at stake with the Ukraine crisis? The threat of a large scale. I want you to note. I want to point this out before I start reading. Throughout this article, there are sources. There are links to other articles as source material for some of the claims that are made in the article. But what you'll notice is the most insane claim that they make has no link to a source. (coughs) And it's right at the beginning here and then it's brought up again later. The threat of a large-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine has put the United States and its European allies on high alert in part due to the potential for major disruptions to the European energy market, which remains highly dependent on Russian oil and gas. There's no source there. The threat of a large-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's no source. I don't know if you saw the video that went viral for one of the spokesholes for... I don't know if he's a CIA spokeshole. One of the intelligence spokeshole's was going on about how the Russians are going to make um, a false flag. They're going to do a false flag attack to justify an invasion. And he claims the United States Intelligence Service has intelligence about this operation. And you've got this guy from the AP and his name is Matt something. I forget his name, but apparently he's always been 
He's kind of a real dude, even though he works for AP, which I know you, you think, how could that be? But I don't know. I guess he's been a real ass dude for a while. And he's just questioning this guy. And he goes, what evidence do you have of that? And the guy's just, I, I just told you. You should watch the video. I should put it in the show notes. You should watch it. He goes, well, I just told you what the evidence is. And the guy's like, you, you no, you just, you're just making a claim. You're not providing actual, well, we declassified it. So of course it's true. We only declassify things when we're confident in them. He's like, what intelligence do you have though? What's the intelligence that they're going to do this false flag attack? He even says, this is kind of like Alex Jones territory. You're talking about false flags, like. It's, it's pretty interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to it so you can watch that. But um, anyway, here you go again. The threat of a large-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. No source. You got any evidence for that? No. This is the Council on Foreign Relations, for crying out loud. A Russian assault could trigger the, trigger the, can't trigger. <laughs> the cancellation of pending projects including the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to Germany, while Russian President Vladimir Putin has threatened to restrict energy exports. Now, here's the thing. Here's another thing. A Russian assault could trigger the... Trigger the I did it again, dude. I can't say trigger. <laughs> the cancellation of pending projects. They're making this seem like this is incomplete. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is finished. It's done. It's been built. It's a... It's a pipeline, it's an oil, natural gas pipeline between Russia and Germany. And you know who's not thrilled about this? Germany. It's not just Russia who's not psyched about everyone becoming involved and making this a controversial point, this pipeline. Because Germany's going, Germany just shut down three of its nuclear power plants. And this got kind of a, like it's an example of congratulations, you just played yourself in uh, the climate effort. So in an effort for cleaner energy, I don't know, you know, nuclear does have issues, but certainly one of the issues is not that it's not clean. It, it's not, um, it's not like coal or, um, and again, we could, we could get into that otherwise on how coal is not what it's been portrayed as and same goes for natural gas or oil. And there are so many problems with solar energy and wind energy. But even the climate catastrophists don't claim that uh, nuclear reactors are a source of, you know, big production of carbon in the atmosphere. But for whatever reason, Germany decided we're going to shut down three of our nuclear power plants. Meanwhile, France is building two new ones. Sip of water. And, you know, Germany's trying to do this whole 100% renewable energy, and it's just not working out. But now they're shutting down these plants. It makes them more reliant on natural gas imports from Russia, who's, in, who's the, I believe, the primary importer of natural gas to Europe is Russia. And so you've created a situation where, congratulations, you just played yourself. You're extremely reliant on Russia now for your state to function. Your country. Uh, in an effort to mitigate such a crisis, the White House is spearheading efforts to redirect energy supplies to Europe. 
but experts say any solution will come at a painfully high cost. Okay, why do it then? And why are we redirecting energy supplies to Europe if right now we're having our own energy issues and gas has not been this high in over a decade? Why do we get involved in these situations at all? <clears throat> what is Russia's energy situation? Russia is an energy giant, the world's third largest producer of oil and second largest producer of natural gas. By some estimates, fossil, fossil fuels account for 14% of the nation's economic output. Revenue from the sector is responsible for more than 40% of the federal, federal budget. In recent years, Russia has used energy revenue to accumulate some $630 billion. Um, okay. Putin largely insulates his government from the effect of economic sanctions by utilizing their um, energy resources. Much of Russia's energy output goes to satisfying European demand, especially natural gas. Okay. Moscow has sought to build new pipelines, including the controversial Nord Stream 2, to bypass older networks. It has also approved a new gas pipeline to China though its sales there will be a fraction of its European sales. Again, there's they have a link for a new gas pipeline to China. Well, perhaps it's within that source that talks about how it would be less of the European sales. But here's the thing. Notice the framing. <coughs> Notice the framing here. This is an important point. Moscow has sought to build new pipelines, including the controversial Nord Stream 2. Why is it controversial? And why are they putting this solely on Russia, on Moscow, if the pipeline's going to Germany? Obviously, Germany would have had to be cooperating with this project. In fact, what I don't even know, and it what is not made clear in this article is, was Germany just as involved in this idea as Russia? Did Germany want the pipeline? Did Germany set this up? How involved were they? Surely they must have been, you would assume, at least equally as involved as the Russians. But here they frame it as a controversial pipeline from the Russians. It's like, who's getting the, who's getting the natural gas, though? The Germans. What's their role in all of this? So here's an interesting one. And again, it's an interesting framing of it. How much does Europe rely on Russian energy? There is a mutual dependence. The Kremlin depends on revenue from Europe, while Europe depends on Russian energy. That's not like, that's not, who would, who would say that? The dependency is from Europe. Because Russia can just sell it elsewhere. Like, if Russia has the thing that people are dependent on, Europe needs the natural gas in order to function, in order to power things, in order to put gas in trucks and cars. And then they're saying, well, well, no, but Russia's also dependent because they need the European money. It's like, well, true, but Russia could find other customers. They still have the resource. If Russia cuts off the fuel supply to Europe and then finds other customers, they're good. They're fine. But who's not fine? Europe. 
So you could, I suppose, Russia would have to go through the process of finding new customers. I mean, it would probably just be China and other Asian countries. And that might be a hindrance to them in the short term. But who's going to be way more affected by this is Europe. So you would have to say, if you're being honest, that at the very least, Europe is more dependent on Russian natural gas than Russia is dependent on European revenue. But many analysts say Europe, and the other thing is, what Russia could also do is just increase the prices. And they'll say, we'll still, but you're sanctioning us and we have to pay for the sanctions. So we're going to do this by raising the price of natural gas that we're supplying to you. I'm sorry. And then I guess you could also say that Europe could just go to the Middle Eastern countries for gas, like Saudi Arabia and stuff. But then what's stopping those countries have proven to be more um, cavalier in their manipulation of the oil market and oil prices. So they could just kind of arbitrarily be like, oh, we got Europe by the balls? All right, we're going to increase the prices. So in this scenario, they're framing it as though it's a mutual dependency. It's clearly not mutual. Again, you could say that Russia is somewhat dependent on European revenue, but they're clearly in the power position where they have the resource that's being purchased and Europe has the money to pay for it. I'm taking a sip of water. It's all about the framing with these articles. It's all about the framing here. Um, overall, Russia supplies about one-third of European nat natural gas consumption. I think you already wrote that. Used for winter heating. Yeah, it would be bad to do it now, especially in the winter, as well as electricity generation and industrial production. The European Union also turns to Russia for more than one quarter, quarter of its crude oil. And that's the, the largest single energy source is Russia. Some EU states are far more dependent than others. Portugal and Spain use little Russian energy, while Germany, the largest European economy, gets more than half of its natural gas and more than 30% of its crude oil supplies from Russia. France gets most of its electricity from nuclear power, but still relies on Russian imports to meet its fossil fuel needs. Analysts say plans in Germany and other countries to phase out nuclear and coal could increase this dependence. That's what I was just referring to earlier. So when you shut down your nuclear power plants, you're now more dependent on Russia. And could this cause a rift in the European Union where certain countries might be more gung-ho about creating conflict with Russia and then other countries such as Germany would say, no, 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 whoa, whoa, easy. Because they've got this NATO agreement, you know, that's mostly, NATO has 30 member states and they're mostly European and the United States is involved. But, you know, if they, if Russia, if all of these sanctions are coming from Russia saying, do not, you can't make Ukraine a NATO ally. And by the way, you need unanimous approval to become a NATO nation. So you would have to have all 30 countries approve Ukraine of becoming a NATO ally. 
and you've got certain border states with Russia that would probably be opposed to it because it's antagonizing Russia. If you're one of the NATO nations that borders Russia, do you really want to antagonize Russia to the point that now your nation might be a threat if Russia's as aggressive as people are claiming they are? So they might veto it. They might say, no, 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 we're not going to make... So it's kind of like a, uh, it's like a red herring, this whole NATO thing, because the likelihood that even if they wanted to, and even if the United States, for example, said, okay, fine, we're going to make Ukraine a NATO ally, they probably wouldn't be able to do it because they wouldn't be able to get unanimous consent to do that from all the other nation NATO uh, member states. And that's just one of the aspects of the scam that is the, you know, increasing tensions in Russia and Ukraine. I mean, the tension's real, but the idea that it's coming solely from Russia is not real. In fact, the United States is a, playing a pivotal role, including our promise made to Russia to not further expand east. So we're rescinding our promise, which is not something that's new to the United States, rescinding promises. <laughs> so um, let's continue here. But this is what I'm saying. Like, It seems to me that in the event of either who are the victims here? Let's take certain scenarios. If there becomes a hot war between Russia and Ukraine, which is very not likely. And that would have to be the United States pushing really hard for that, for something like that to happen. It would have to be a mutual from Russia and the United States to push into something like that. And it would still be a proxy war, but there would be American soldiers involved and soldiers from all these other NATO nations. Who are the real victims? Russia, for what's written here, where they wouldn't be able, where they would stop selling, they would probably stop supplying natural gas to a lot of European nations. And so they take a cut in their revenue. They'd also be dealing with a war which is costly. So yes, it would hurt Russia. Ukraine would be a victim because Ukraine would just get bullied by Russia. And probably there would be a lot of Ukrainian soldiers dying and probably civilians too. Every European nation would suffer who's getting natural gas and crude oil from Russia. And most of all, Germany would suffer and Germany's the most powerful economy in Europe. And so what I'm guessing behind the scenes, who's probably trying to de-escalate this, I would assume, and I'm saying this based on only kind of common sense deduction here, that probably Germany is the most opposed to this because they stand to, to, to lose the most of all the European nations. Because not only would they probably have to provide troops but they would be hamstrung by losing a third of their natural gas 
and uh, a lot of their crude oil and other resources that they get from Russia. Um, let me see here. Oh, yeah. So um, how could Nord Stream? Oh, here we find out why it's controversial in Nord Stream 2. So let's let's read this paragraph or two. Nord Stream 2 is an expansion of the original Nord Stream pipeline, which was completed in 2011 and carries natural gas from northwest Russia through the Baltic Sea directly to Germany. NS2 was approved by the German government in 2018 and construction was completed in September 2021. See what I mean? It's done. Earlier in the article, what did it say? Um pending projects it called it a pending project but it's done they say a little later in the article that it's done however its launch has faced regulatory delays and renewed political scrutiny amid rising western tensions with russia now here's the other thing what does russia care about european regulation with regards to their pipeline they're not beholden to the european regulatory agencies and then you could even have a situation where Germany goes, just send us the gas. We don't care about the regulations. Just send the gas. And Germany and Russia could kind of obfuscate the whole European Union bureaucracy red tape. And that might even be a good thing in terms of getting Germany out of the European Union, which I don't think would ever happen. But if Germany left the European Union, I don't know if the European Union could survive that because like... I said, that's their most powerful economy. Um, okay. If approved, NS2 will allow more of Russia's natural gas exports to Germany to bypass Ukraine and other current transit companies. This has been controversial from the start. Critics, including Washington. That's a weird way to write that, don't you think? They make it sound like George Washington. Critics, including George Washington have warned it will give Moscow, they mean the United States, more sway over European countries and potentially widen political divisions over how to respond to Russian aggression. Isn't that... Isn't that diplomacy? I don't even understand that. Isn't that kind of diplomacy, like, to avoid aggression if Russia's saying, look... You know, we don't want to build up of NATO troops along our border. And we certainly don't want another NATO nation along our border in Ukraine. We supply you gas. We're going to create a new pipeline. We're going to have more economic cooperation between one another with us supplying you goods and you supplying us money to pay for the goods. But if you try to increase eastward expansion of NATO, then we're going to respond, or, or if you impose sanctions, then we're going to respond with our own sanctions in the form of withholding natural gas and crude oil. That seems fair. It's the framing. Russia's evil. Didn't we already do the Cold War? Aren't we done with that? Sip of water. Eastern European countries such as Poland and Ukraine, meanwhile, worry that NS2 will provide them of billions of dollars in annual transit fees. 
and put them even more at the mercy of Russia. But see, that's some other bullshit. So the whole point of the pipeline was to bypass all of these countries that the gas went through in transit and to make it easier to get gas directly to Germany, who is their biggest customer. And then Ukraine and Poland are saying, but that's not fair because you need to pay us money to get through our countries. I mean, like, that's kind of like a tough titty situation. I'm sorry, but they found a way to bypass And they're finding a way to save billions of dollars. See, they frame it like Nord Stream 2 will deprive Poland and Ukraine of billions of dollars in annual transit fees. But you could just as easily frame that as through Nord Stream 2, Russia and Germany will save billions of dollars in annual transit fees. Just reframe. That's all you got to do. For many observers, these dangers were amplified again in late 2021 as Russia held back from delivering additional gas supplies amid a spike in energy demand. The result was a tripling of prices and threats of shortages across Europe. For France, the episode confirmed its long-held advocacy for nuclear power. This is just like, you know, what's going on here is just like international political gaming. You know, like, and it's not violent. And it's like, okay, Germany, you want to shut down your nuclear power plants? Well, that has made you more dependent on us. And if you're going to play around and start talking about bringing Ukraine in as a NATO ally and talking about bringing in new sanctions, then we're going to mess around. We're going to put troops on the border and we're going to cut your, you know, your natural gas supply a bit. And then we'll see how that plays out. And then maybe you want to reconsider. I mean, what what I don't what I really don't understand is like what is Russia really supposed to do? Are they supposed to stand down entirely and that would make them good guys? I don't really get that. And then people also don't seem to understand the fact that we're talking about Eastern Europe and Russia. We're talking about things happening outside of our borders. And again, it's like when when Russia put um, missiles on Cuba, that was a problem for the United States, yes. No denying that. That was a big problem for the United States because that's directly right outside of our borders. So yeah, that was a problem. And it did escalate a lot. And it's understandable that it escalated a lot on the United States end. And that's in that scenario... The United States wasn't in the wrong for, but we had also preceded that by putting missiles, I think, in Turkey. And Russia was saying, move the missiles away from Turkey. We don't want the missiles in Turkey. And we said, no, fuck you. And then Russia said, okay, we're putting them in Cuba. And then we said, whoa, 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 okay. And we did agree and we moved our missiles away. And they did too. Let's see. This is the the last little section here. What comes next? Sip of water. Now what comes next? U.S. and European leaders are particularly concerned about major supply disruptions in the case of a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. See, no source again. 
a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. Are you talking about full-blown, all-out war? I mean, what are they even referring to here? The German government has said that it could cancel NS2 completely if that happens. Well, they won't. Why would they shoot themselves in the foot that bad? That's just talk. They're not going to do that. Such a move, however, would pose a major, major challenge. How to keep Europe supplied with fuel, with, with fuel. They're already supplied with fuel in their, in their parliaments. While also pushing, punishing Russia. U.S. President Joe Biden has promised to impose severe costs for a Russian invasion, including cutting Russian banks off from the global financial system. Interesting that the United States has the ability to cut a nation off from the global financial system. That's an interesting little side note that we can get into with the World Bank and stuff, but that would be a whole, a whole several episodes to talk about that. But isn't that interesting? Uh, an interesting little admission of the unfair sway that the United States holds over world banking organizations like the IMF and the World Bank. But if Putin, because it's like they call it the World Bank, it's the United States Bank. But if Putin responds with gas cutoffs, that could spike energy prices further, drive inflation, and undermines, undermine Europe's econo economic recovery. I'm having a hard time here. Efforts are underway to backstop European energy needs. Europe has, this is the best, this is the best part. Europe has about one month's worth of cushion gas or the minimum gas typically required to be kept in storage, which it could draw on as an, in an emergency. In addition, there is the roughly nine weeks worth of demand usually held by commercial suppliers, and the White House is spearheading efforts to scrape together additional liquefied natural gas supplies. Again, wouldn't that make our prices of gas go up? It's so, Joe Biden, he talks out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, as the mouthpiece, it's not him. He's got nothing to do with this. It's Barack Obama or whoever. Talking about, we, we care about the supply chain issues and we care about the rising inflation and we're going to do something about it. What are you going to do about it? We're going to make it worse. A similar approach helped supply Japan in the aftermath of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Yeah, but that was totally different. That was a disaster, and you didn't have a situation where, this is a completely different situation than a nuclear disaster. This is a potential international conflict in which one of the sides has supplies energy for the other side. It's totally different. Final paragraph, but analysts say that most of the world's supply is spoken for, and that even if such measures could relieve the short-term crunch, the cost will be high. Former CFR senior fellow and Tufts University energy expert Amy Myers-Jaff argues that in the event of a Russian cutoff, it is likely that Europe will find a way. Don't you love that? That's an expert. CFR senior fellow and Tufts University energy expert Amy Myers-Jaff says... Europe will find a way. Again, there's no source. <laughs> like, how would they find a way? I don't know. 
They just will, though. I'm an expert. Trust me. I'm Amy Myers Jeff. I know a thing or two about energy. Jeff says producers could redirect some LNG shipments or shift more of their energy mix to coal or other sources. So that's the final irony of all of this. Europe, who's spearheading the whole ESG, environmental social governance, whereby you are judged and given a score as a company. Really, this is World Economic Forum stuff, but Europe is far ahead of the curve as compared to the United States on this. And I don't mean ahead of the curve in a good way. Of environmental social governance where you're given a score and a rating based on things like how much carbon do you produce? The more carbon, the worse your score will be. How diverse is your company? Things like that. It's called environmental social government, governance. And so they're saying, well, Russia's so dangerous and Russia needs to be dealt with so hard that whatever the cost, even if it means switching back to using more coal, because now they're between a rock and a hard place. It's like, well, what's the bigger threat, Russia or climate change? I thought we were all going to die from climate change. Are you really so selfish and have so much hubris with regards to this Russia situation that you are willing to destroy the environment with coal? Again, I think that's all nonsense. I'm just speaking with their, I'm just going by their playbook. I mean, you're saying that Russia is so dangerous that they're more dangerous than climate change? Greta would be dumbfounded. She's often dumbfounded, but especially here. Okay, well, that's the whole article. That's the article. Now, where are we at? We're at an hour and 41 minutes. Dude, I've given you a really good podcast here and a long one. And I do have those two other... Um, I do have the two other articles, but I didn't think it was going to take 42 minutes to get through the first one. So I, I got like, I'm, I'm, I'm about done. I'm about done. Probably someone's going to be home soon too. And I don't want to have to abruptly cut off. So I'll save the other two and the other two aren't that great. Anyway, it's, um, killing of Islamic state leaders signals why U S presence in middle East will continue. And the other one is the COVID 19 pandemic and China's global health leadership. So I'm not going to do those. I'll find better ones before the next time we do this um, little CFR update. So that's going to be all for now. Um, this was good shit. Congratulations. You got to listen to a really good podcast. I'm really happy for you. And um, that's about all. Listen, just keep in mind that it's good. Okay, we can we can say that we can acknowledge that we don't have to be blackpilled all the time. This is definitely a lot of steps in the right direction, a lot of mistakes by the cult. And that's good news. And it is the year of the lion. Keep an eye out for good symbolism. Positive energy. Put that out. Give it to the truckers, for example. 
Anyway, thanks for listening. You know I love you, and uh, I'll see you next time. Okay, bye.